Isn't it interesting how some of your best memories with your closest friends required a time of intense misery? Uh, we took a family vacation not too long ago. I'm not going to bore you with all the details because they don't matter, but we traveled about 3,000 miles, and we were miserable at times. But of the 3,000 miles, there's only a couple of moments that I remember from being in the car. And one of them was this. We, we were in Tennessee traveling along uh, through the Smoky Mountains, and Long story short, just our kids needed to get out of the car. And so the boys got out of the car and I got out with them, you know, by the river, things are fine. And all of a sudden, one of my kids, one of my boys starts screaming. I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I thought he twisted his ankle because we were kind of going down to, toward the river. And he said, there's something on my heel. And so I look, there's a bee. And so I, I try to swipe it away. And then he starts screaming again, ow, ow, ow. And then I start screaming, and there's a sharp pain right here. And then he starts screaming again. I'm like, get back to the car. So we run back to the car, and he was stung by three bees. I was stung once right on the, the top of my nose. And there was screaming in that car for a good 20 minutes until we said, let's watch a movie. <laughs> and parenting tip, let's watch a movie fixes everything. And we were good from there on out. But misery, just for that moment, it kind of brought us together. It's like, you know what? This car ride isn't that bad. We've got each other. And sometimes it's weird how misery brings people together. This is part seven of our series going through the book of Genesis. And what we saw last week was not just misery, but tragedy. And I appreciate how Pastor Ben brought out the fact that while we have these cartoon images of Noah and his ark, the reality is that millions, if not billions of people died while eight people survived on an ark. And I know that, that roughly a year of being on an ark with eight people and thousands of animals, I'm sure there was plenty of misery for the Noah household and his sons. But I can't imagine what they must have been talking about a year after, sitting around the campfire, Shem, you know, goes over to Japheth. Hey, remember that time the mice got into the elephant enclosure? <laughs> oh, we were, yeah, that was something. And they're just sharing these memories from their misery together. And I'm sure it brought them together as a family. But here's what we see. And here's where we're going today. No amount of misery this world has gone through has ever really brought us together. Maybe it works for a short amount of time, and maybe it works for a small group of people, but no amount of misery this world experiences has ever truly brought us together. And so I was thinking about this question this week, and maybe you thought about it too, like what would it take to get the world to get along? What would it actually take? And just to, you know, bring out the tension a little bit more, just you could think politically, you're like, what would it take to get two people with different political views in a debate where they honor and respect the other person and assume the best about their intentions? What would it take to live in a world without borders where there was no need to be suspicious of other people? We just all got along. What would it take to have a workplace where there didn't have to be rules about PTO and other manuals that spell out what you can do and what, can't do, what you can't do. What would it take for us all just to get along? Well, as it turns out, this question was answered for us back in the summer of 96. 
Some really smart people, very talented people, spent $75 million and shot over 70 days worth of footage as they captured what it would take to bring the world together. And this is what they found. The good news is all we need is a global alien invasion and we will be a world without borders. But what I want to do today is, first of all, get this distraction off the screen. What I want to do today is show you from Genesis how God actually shows us where these conflicts come from, why it is that nothing can really bring us together as a world. And there's going to be a couple of takeaways. One thing you'll see on a big scale, like why, there are, why there's a language barrier, why there's natural distrust between people. We're going to get to that. But, but where I want this message to land is with this application. I want you to walk out of here today with some practical ways that you can address the disconnect you have. And all of us, it might be a little bit different, and I'll, I'll challenge you at the end with some really specific things. But how can we make a, this world a place where we can just all get along? How can you make your life a place where you bring down the borders, where you just get along with other people? And Genesis tells us why this is such a struggle. So where we left off last time was the end of the flood. We've, we, we had the aftermath of Noah and his three sons and their, their, um, how, their, their wives, and so you have, you've got eight people on the earth, and Genesis chapter 9 kind of takes us to the end of the flood account. Then Genesis chapter 10 shows us how three households, Shem, Ham, and, Ham, and Japheth, they all like, had kids, and they, their kids had kids. It shows you all the generations after the flood. And then Genesis chapter 11 answers a really good question. The question is this, if, if we all came from one family, from Noah's family, why are there so many different people and tribes and languages? Like, wouldn't we all be the same? Wouldn't we just be one big family? And Genesis 11 actually expands a portion of Genesis 10 to show us why this is. So the, the, the title you see in your Bible is the Tower of something. Now, the reason I don't want to say that word yet is because I've recognized that some of us were taught different ways to pronounce it. So let's get a little interactive. And if you're online, maybe you can try to spell this in the chat. I'm not sure how it'll work. But um, some of you have heard Tower of Babel. Some of you have heard Tower of Babel. And maybe there's another option out there I haven't heard of. On the count of three, could you just say out loud whatever you want me to say for the rest of the sermon? And we'll go with that. So one, two, three. Wow, this was a Babel group. Last night was Babel, so I'll try to stick with Babel for today. Um, the Hebrew word is Bavel. It's, it's kind of a weird, it's actually got a V in it a little bit, but it, um, we Englishize it and uh, make it a B. So we'll try to stick with Babel for the rest of the, the sermon. One important note is that Babel is not a tower. It is not a tower. As you look through Genesis 11, it's something different. And we're going to get to that by the end of this text. So let's jump into Genesis chapter 11, where we see why it is there's so many different tribes, different languages, different people, and what was the cause of it at the beginning. Now, at the beginning of chapter 11, it says the whole world had one language. I love the Hebrew. It's, it's just funny. If, if you could read Hebrew, you would just be giggling. It's, it says the whole world had one lip. <laughs> one lip. We were one-lipped people. And a common speech. Literally, we had one word. 
there was just, whenever someone spoke, like everyone could understand them, it was one language. Now, as people moved eastward, and think of this in context, uh, these are God's words, but Moses was holding the pen. And Moses' original audience was in the Israel area off the Mediterranean. And so from their perspective, they're looking eastward. Sorry, for you, it's this way. Eastward, right? Yeah, eastward. And eastward, you got lots of mountains, lots of hills, lots of mountains, lots of hills. It keeps going and going until finally you reach the area of Mesopotamia, also known as Shinar. They, they found a plain, a flat place in Shinar. Now, just think about this. If you were looking for a place to live, why would a flat place be beneficial? Maybe just if you're here in the building, you can look out the windows over there and realize why a flat place is nice. Because if it's flat, you don't have to take a lot of dirt away to make room for buildings. Now, the hills, the mountains, you can make a little house here and there, but a plain now, that offers a different opportunity. And so as they moved eastward, the, the ideas were starting to kick in. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if we did something here? Now, let's go back real quick to, to chapter 10, because chapter 10 gives us some insight into what we're about to see happen. It talks about the descendants of Noah. It's, and I'm just picking, let's just jump in. Cush was the father of Nimrod. Am I the only kid from the 80s where Nimrod was like a derogatory word? <laughs> Way to go, Nimrod. <laughs> Actually, Nimrod was a compliment. If, you, if someone called you Nimrod, it was re- reference to your abilities. He was a mighty warrior on earth, and they actually had a saying. You can open up uh, Genesis 10, and you can see the phrase that people would use as a term of honor. Uh, the, first, the first of Nimrod's centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Babylon, okay, just start thinking about Babylon, Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna, all of those were in Shinar, in this great plains area. So Nimrod is one of the people who first went to Shinar, and it was one of his ideas, let's build something here. Let's go back to chapter 11. So they said to one another, Nimrod and his friends, hey, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And to some of you, this sounds crazy, but from someone who grew up in Oklahoma, this sounds normal. Hey, let's make some bricks and and cook them thoroughly. Literally, the Hebrew says, uh, when it says uh, bake them thoroughly, it's literally, let's fire, fire them. And whatever Hebrew uses two words back to back, it's basically the, the, um, the, the most intense way to use that word. Let's fire them, fire them. And so <laughs> this is going to be a surprise. But when men started to explore the frontier, they were playing with fire. And they said, let's make bricks, but let's do it a different way. We're not just going to let them bake in the sun. Let's see what happens when we get them really, really hot. And so they used brick instead of what the Israelites were used to, stone, and they used tar for mortar. And I know this is easy to just brush over and say, cool, they're they're making building materials. What we're actually witnessing here is new technology unfolding before our eyes. This was a new way of constructing things that opened up entirely new opportunities. 
You were no longer confined to quarrying stone out of a quarry and transporting it. Now you could make usable, movable bricks that were easy to move. And so their wheels start spinning. And then they come up with this idea. Come, let us build ourselves a city. And what's going to be special about this city? Not just that it's big and flat because we've got a nice big plane here, but we're going to put a tower that reaches to the heavens. And some commentators have looked at this and they kind of pick apart the fact that they're building a city because God told them to go and fill the earth and now they're you know, staying in one place. And maybe there's some truth to that. Um, other commentators look at this part where it says reaches to the heavens and it says, oh, see, they're, they're trying to reach God. And that's, that's plausible because you look at some of the ziggurats and other things that people have built. The idea is you're getting closer to God. And so maybe that was their intent. We could actually make a lot of good things out of this. Maybe they wanted a really high tower because they wanted to distribute water to the city. And that's a way that we could water things. But as Moses records this, he tells us why, and it's not so good. We want this tower so that we may make a name for ourselves. We shall name it Tower Nimrod. Nimrod Tower. And our name shall be on the top, and whenever people see it, they will gasp and say, what an amazing engineering feat this was. And I kind of get it. Just imagine being within a few generations of the flood and you're hearing stories from your dad, your grandpa, maybe Noah is still alive, and you're hearing stories of what the flood was like and how people were caught out in the open with no place to go. Would you want to go too far from home? Wouldn't you want something to see so that even if you were 10 miles from home, you could look up and see the tower and say, that's where my hope is, that's where my home is. And so they said, we will make this tower for us. People will know how great we are. And then it concludes like this. Otherwise, what, what will happen? Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, what struck me about this is that they actually provide the problem after the solution. Usually you start with the problem. Hey, come, we've got this problem. We don't want to be scattered. So what can we do about this problem? Oh, let's make bricks. Let's make a city. You know, usually it's the problem first and then the solution. But here's something to think about. When you find a solution that you're just so excited about, a technology that you're just so excited about, sometimes what you do is you find a problem. You find an excuse to get that solution. And when you try to find a problem, to fit your solution, that's usually a problem. Usually that's a sign of idolatry, that the solution you're looking to is something that's taking the place of God himself, and that is absolutely true here. They were afraid. What, what, can, what can help your fear? I'll tell you what, technology is not a good substitute for what God can offer. What they hoped for is that human technology would solve their problem with God, they were afraid of doing what God commanded, afraid of filling the earth. They should have gone to God with that fear, but instead they went to their bricks and tar. Now, I, I, I'm feeling like there's some application in this for us today. Maybe you're not playing around with bricks and tar, although if you're from Oklahoma, that's totally fine. But maybe, maybe it's a different form of technology, and you've said, this is so cool. This will make my life complete. It will make my life full. 
And I'll acknowledge technology can be helpful, but it doesn't solve the problems of humanity. Human technology cannot solve the problem of humanity. Number one, I think I need this, we all need this. Human technologies make a very poor substitute for God's solutions. If you are afraid, technology makes a very poor substitute for God's security. If you're not sure who you are and what your value is, technology and social media make a very poor substitute for what God declares about your identity. If you're not sure where life is going and you're uncertain about the future, technology makes a very poor substitute for the certainty of God's promises. Technologies are great. They're fun. They make life easier in a lot of ways, but they do not solve the core of life's problems. And this is what the people at Babel, Babel, Babel had to learn. As we go on in the story then, we're going to see something totally ironic. And I love how the book of Genesis, it doesn't like disrespect people outright, but it does kind of jab the elbow into just some competing ideas. Because just think about this, the people in Babel, they have this idea, they're building this tower, and their idea is, we're about to poke through into heaven and say, hey, God, how's it going? And we're going to get God's attention because of how great we are. And I love how verse five continues the account. The Lord came down. He didn't go sideways to say, hey, nice tower you've got. You're almost at my level. But no, God's like, okay, let's go all the way down to look at this cute little thing that they're building because they're never going to reach me. But he came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. There's... There's something that we should remember. If, if you're a, um, a go-getter, if you're like a driven person, you probably look at your achievements with some satisfaction. What I know about Babel is that the only thing their achievement proved was how limited they really were. No matter how high this tower would get, it would only be an illustration that there was a limit to how high they could go. You should try hard. You should be motivated. You should be driven. Do great things with your life. But just remember this. Your achievements, they're good, but they illustrate the fact that you have a limit. No matter how high you go, God has to come down to find where you're at. And so God comes, comes down. This is assigning human ideas to, to what God, he didn't literally come down, but Genesis records it this way. God came down to see how things were going, and here's what God saw. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then unfortunately, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. That was an interesting phrase, and I had to think about that. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible. So is God like hamstringing humanity by confusing languages? Does he have to hold us down so that we're not as great as him? No, God is doing this not because he's threatened by humanity, but because humanity is threatening its own hope. If as one people they can make the city and put all their glory in it and say, look at us, look at our name, God's fear is that they might actually be successful. 
And then city after city after city will just be opportunity for people to wander from him and forget who he was. And so as both a judgment and a blessing, God confuses the language of the workers at Babel. He confuses their languages so that one day they just start speaking things that are gibberish to one another. And just imagine this, like, you know, the, the plumber and the electrician, they always get along, right? But um, they're, they're talking to each other and all of a sudden like, it's different words and the guy's like, what does this mean? What does this mean? There's confusion, there's confusion. So the whole idea of Babel was that people would make a name for themselves and now we're understanding what that name is. So here's the conclusion. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. The thing they were afraid of has now happened because they pursued the wrong way. They thought technology would keep them together, but actually their pursuit of that drove them further apart. So the Lord scattered them. And then God gets to the point. Verse nine wraps up this section. He says, that, that is why this city, this tower, is called Babel. Not Babylon. Don't be confused. You've got your own ideas, Babylonians, about what your name means and all that stuff. But here's the real story. It's called Babel because the name you've earned for yourself, thanks to Nimrod, has everything to do with confusion. And that word Babel or Babel in, in Hebrew literally means confusion, chaos because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, just, I, one question I had is, why would confusing their language make them scattered? You know, a plumber and an electrician, they can both like draw things and here's what I'm gonna do. They could have figured it out. But what did confusing the language now do? When there was this language gap, this cultural barrier, it now introduced something they had not experienced before. It was the presence of suspicion. And maybe you've experienced this before, where you walk into a public space and it's all good, and you, there's a couple of people there, a few people who are speaking a language that you don't know what they're saying. And they're talking, maybe they glance at you, and then they start laughing. And what do you think? Are they laughing about me? Am I doing something wrong? And there's this suspicion because there's a gap of understanding and you're not sure where to go. Maybe you've experienced this in another culture if you travel to a different country or if you travel to a different part of the United States. Things are different. They have a different mindset and you have suspicion. Like, what are we doing? What are they doing? And what we see from Genesis is that Babel made suspicion our default setting when it comes to the way we see people and interact, and especially with people who are different from you, people who look different, who think different, people who speak differently. Babel made suspicion our default setting. And I just want to elevate this to a God level real quickly because this is the same setting God should have with us. You know, you're saying your, your prayer and you say, God, I, I, please forgive me. I know I messed up. I, I'm going to work on this. I'm not going to do it again. God should be crossing his arms in heaven going, really? Do you, are you really not going to do this again? And whenever you say to God, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll do this. I promise I'll do that. And God should be going up to you like, really? 
De- suspicion should be his default setting when it comes to us, but it's actually worse than suspicion. Suspicion means that you're a suspect. Like there might be something wrong, but with me and with you, we are beyond the level of suspect. We are actually at the level of condemned, guilty. He doesn't suspect something about you. He knows something about you. And there's not just a potential conflict. We are at war against heaven. This is true of all humanity. That's why at Babel, he had to intervene and say, the only way to fix this is to separate you, go to your different countries, go to your different languages. That's the only way to keep you safe. And that's what should have happened to us. God should have separated us from him. But instead, when he experienced that gap that was caused by our sin, what did God do? He didn't fill it with suspicion. He filled it with his own blood. Jesus came to this earth not to point out how far we had fallen and say, you better shape up. Jesus came to this earth to shed his blood as a sacrifice. He came not to fill the gap with suspicion, but to fill it with grace. So that every time you pray to God, God, I'm sorry, I know I messed up. I'm gonna try harder. He says, I forgive you. I love you and I will give you my spirit to transform your life one day at a time. And I will forgive you again tomorrow because he fills that gap with grace. Isn't that amazing? That when Jesus came to this world, he came to fill that gap with grace. And so here's what I want you to know. When it comes to our relationships, suspicion is often, unfortunately, the default setting we have with people. But with God, what we see is this. Jesus had grace for the guilty. He had kindness and love for those whom he knew were guilty. And so here's where Jesus changes everything. What many people often point to is the day that Babel was undone. It wasn't long after Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven that his closest disciples were gathered in a place, just kind of waiting in Jerusalem, not sure what they should do and knowing that something was about to happen. And then one day, something happened. Jerusalem was filled with people that were from, as the Bible says, they were from every nation under heaven. Lots of people had gathered at Jerusalem because it was time for a religious festival. And there were people, and if you read Acts chapter 2, there were people, it lists like a dozen different places, a dozen different languages. Just imagine the confusion in Jerusalem that day of all these people trying to get to where they need to go and purchase what they needed to buy. Then something happened. God started playing with fire. And what seemed like fire appeared on the heads of these disciples, and they started to speak different languages. So that everyone who had gathered in Jerusalem, they're they're listening, they all hear the same thing. And guess what they hear? They heard the good news of Jesus. They heard the message that God has filled the gap with grace and that Jesus was the answer. And as the Apostle Paul talked about this a couple decades later, 
he wrote this letter to some Christians, just reminding them of the impact of what Jesus means. He said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I know there's a border between them. There's a line, but we're now brought together. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One. God is no longer separating people. He has brought them together as one. And this is how God is changing the world. He changed the world at Babel by confusing languages and scattering people away. But through Jesus and through the gospel, he calls them toward a greater name. Not a name of some people called Nimrod who built the tower, but he's calling them to the name of Jesus. So I want to close today with a specific question and application for you. It's true, we live in a world where there will be gaps. So I just want to ask you the question, where have you allowed suspicion to fill a gap? Would you just at least be aware of it? Step one is awareness. Where have you allowed your suspicion to fill a gap between you and another person? And you're hesitant, you're staying back, you're saying, I don't think you know, I should do anything. And just to acknowledge, if you know a person really well, sometimes the best thing is to create some distance. Unfortunately, that happens in human relationships. But what I'm talking about is the person that maybe you don't know all that well, the neighbor you haven't connected with, the person at work that you just haven't, there's been suspicion for one reason or another. Where have you allowed that to settle in and harden? And maybe a question for you, would you start to chisel away at that suspicion this week? As you remember that God had grace for you, he filled your gap with grace, would you also do the same for them? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a knock on the door. Maybe it's a friendly hi. Fill that gap with kindness, with grace, because that's ultimately what God did for you. Number four, when you find a gap, would you fill it with grace? Would you, when you find a gap, would you fill it with grace? And this is going to be a part of our world. We will continue to live in a world of borders and a world of suspicion, and that's our natural default setting, but God has given us a different way to live. He filled our gap with grace, and now he invites you to do the same. And I wonder, what might happen if we would do that as a city? What would happen if you did that as a family, if you filled a gap with grace? I can't imagine the kind of world, the kind of neighborhood, the kind of family that God might bring about with that kind of grace. So I hope what you found through this series is that as you better understand our beginnings, it helps us to clarify where we are so that we can get to where God wants us to be. And when it comes to the gaps we see in this world and the conflict and the borders, that's not something that can be taken away. No amount of misery that humans experience will bring us together, but it was the misery and the sacrifice of one that truly brings us together. So next week, we're actually going to start a new series that's all on the topic of faith, what faith is, where it comes from, what it does. And if you've ever wondered, I don't know if I have faith or if I have enough faith, I hope you can join us for this next series because we're going to dive deep into that topic and find some good news about what God is working in you. Let's close today with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, at different times in our lives, we all become self-focused and think about the achievements we can do and the great things we could do and 
sometimes we focus way too much on the name we make for ourselves. But in Genesis 11, you remind us that the name we make for ourselves is confusion. It's Babel. It's, it's nothing. It won't last. And nothing we do can ever amount to anything that reaches you. Thank you for the grace you have for us that even though we've had misplaced priorities, still you fill our gap with grace. And each day you offer us that same promise that you love us and you forgive us and you want to transform us through your spirit. So send that spirit among these people today that they may be refreshed in the confidence of your love and motivated to fill the gap with grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.